All right. Um, hopefully, you had a uh, enjoyable time reading through the text. Genesis chapter 22, 1 to 19. Had a little bit of time to reflect on a few of those questions. Uh, obviously, that was intended to give us a platform to build from. So this morning, uh, my intent is to have that kind of be the starting place. We'll talk a little bit about that passage. We'll look at a few others. Uh, but I'm going to start off with a quote. Now, typically, uh, I prefer quotes that are a little bit shorter. This one's a little on the long side. Uh, but I think you are uh, far educated enough to be able to track with uh, this quote. And it does uh, help us to understand what's going on in the passage. So, with that said, the quote will be on the screen while I read it. That the writers of Scripture were doing something with what they were saying is incontrovertible. Their literary products were agenda-driven and discoursed for a purpose, to convey the theological thrust of the text, pericope by pericope, not merely created to convey information. History is therefore never history, but history for. As Bloch declares, in the scriptures, historiographic compositions are primarily ideological in purpose. The authoritative meaning of the author is not found in the event described, but in the author's interpretation of the event. That, of course, is not to claim that the events so described in the biblical text did not happen, but simply that it is the Holy Spirit's in the text accounts of those events that are to be attended to for life transformation not the restoring and deciphering of those behind the text events themselves. The accounts are inspired, not the events, for doctrine, reproof, correction. Such an interpretive undertaking that considers what authors do with what they say is integral to the field of pragmatics, dealing with those aspects of meaning, not necessarily secured exclusively by a semantic theory. In other words, the text is not merely a plain glass window that the reader can look through to discern some event behind it. Rather, the narrative is a stained glass window that the reader must look at. Now, I say all that, or actually I read all that, to say that the passage you read before is written for an intended purpose. It's trying to convey very specific agendas. It wants you as the reader to get something out of it. It is more like a stained glass window than a window you look through. It's not writing the story for you to glance at the text and go, oh, that's exactly what happened. Rather, it's wanting you as the reader to look at it and go, wow, what the author was intending to convey in that story is life transformative for me as I understand my interaction with God. See, it's supposed to teach us something about Yahweh. It's supposed to teach us something that will bring about transformation in life. Now, you know, uh, because we recently went through this text, Julie went through it, did a fabulous job of highlighting several aspects in the text. What I wanna do this morning is just add another layer to the text. And I want it to be centered on this idea that we have been kind of walking through for the last several weeks, which is there are lies that we believe as people that uh, influence the way we interact with God. 
And one particular lie that I think we often believe is that our relationship with God is transactional. What I mean by that is simply that uh, within the church, specifically the Western church, there's this pervading view that uh, we interact with God and it's very much a this for that kind of relationship, a give to get relationship. And much of the way we talk about our relationship with God is that. So for example, if I do these things, then God would be pleased with me. If I don't do these things, then he would be angry or sad or frustrated or disappointed in me. Uh, It makes sense for us to think like that because much of Western culture is set up that way. We interact a lot in our relationships via transaction. If I go to the store, nobody's trying to transform my life. They're simply trying to get me to exchange money for product. Or if I go to some service, they want me to exchange money for a membership. Most of what we do and the way we interact in our culture is very transactional. And so we often translate that into the way we interact with God, where there's a transaction that I'm anticipating that if I do something, I'll get something in return, that it's a give to get or a this for that kind of relationship. Now, what I want to do that uh, we will occasionally do in here is to have you respond to a few questions out loud. So you're just going to have to be loud, shout it out, what your particular idea or thought is. Now, the passage you just read, the pervading idea or the thing that was most true in people's minds as they lived during that era were that the gods were someone that you needed to appease. So gods were generally angry at us. Gods were generally not relational at all. They viewed us as a bunch of ants on the earth and uh, they could stomp us out at any point they wanted. And uh, it was not a uh, beautiful relationship the way that we often speak of our relationship with God. And uh, they would do whatever they could to appease. And as your notes reflect that one of the ways, the highest forms of sacrifice was child sacrifice. So quick question for the audience. What part of the story demonstrates this perspective that Abraham is trying to appease God? And do you feel or how do you feel it's transactional? So there should be a set of questions that come on the screen. Boom. What part of that story demonstrates the perspective that there's this transaction and how does it feel that way? So you tell me, after having read the text, reflected on it for a few minutes, what are some things in the text you see that reinforce this idea? This would be the part where I ask a question and then you respond with an answer, just, in case, just so we're clear. Yeah. Okay, Abraham doesn't argue. Okay, good. What else do we notice in the text that might make it feel transactional? Okay. Mm-hmm. So he is saying that uh, Bob, his friend, uh, is having a heart problem, and we've been praying for Bob. Excellent. Thanks, Carl. Uh, anyone else? Yeah, so he's, uh, if you didn't hear it, he's on a journey. He's got some tasks that he's trying to fulfill. He's trying to like hold up his end of the bargain, so to speak. 
Okay. Any other thoughts? Yeah. So we have the, the section where the author is saying that the perception, so to speak, of Abraham is that this is a requirement that's being uh, asked of him. Okay? So you can see there's several things in the text that make it sound and feel as if it's quite transactional. Now, second question for you. In what ways is the passage that you just read more focused on relationship over transaction? What are some of the clues or hints that we might see as we read it that might tell us that there's a heavy emphasis on relationship in the passage? Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. Excellent. The fact that the Lord spoke to him. Very good. What else? Yeah. Take your son whom you love. Okay. Uh, interesting fact, you probably read it in the notes if you glanced at them. First time ever in the scriptures to this point that the concept of love was introduced. Crazy. That we're in Genesis 22, there's creation, there's husband-wife relationships, there's all brother-sister kinds of friendships, everything, and then we get to love. Yeah. That's the, the uh, implied idea is that sacrifice would mean kill him. Yep, for sure. Someone else, how does relationship stand out in the text? Okay, so there's a relationship between father and son. Uh, that relationship, as we heard before, is centered on love. Okay, I'll give time for one more response. Any other ideas? Okay, moving on. Um, if you look at the section, and Igor is going to put it up on the screen, uh, the section of the text that is in little brackets, if you look at that section, um, how does that section impact your reading of the text? This is the first question. The second question is, what does this additional passage or this additional section uh, trying to get us as readers to remember, okay? So the first question again, if you took this part out of the reading, how would it impact your reading of the text? Okay, so there's no reward if you pull that out. What else? Mm -hmm. Good. Friendship. Okay. Any others? Yeah. Okay. No proof of love or relationship. Good. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Very good. Thanks. One uh, final question. What is this uh, section in the brackets trying to get the reader to remember? Why would the author infuse this part into the text? Mm 
Okay, there's a bigger plan at work. That bigger plan would be found, I believe, in Genesis 12. I haven't looked it up. But uh, in Genesis 12, I believe there is a covenant that's made. That covenant that's made is between Abraham and God, right? So about 10 to 12 chapters earlier, or a section of the scripture earlier, you get this profound promise being made. Then you have a test, or what feels like this moment of like nervousness, anxiety in the text, like what is going to happen In fact, we don't even totally know what happens, and the reason I say that is because if you read the last phrase, it says that Abraham returned. There's no mention of Isaac. There's also no mention of Isaac for the rest of Abraham's life, which seems like, uh, wouldn't you mention that? Wouldn't you mention that he went up and that he came back? But the text doesn't mention that he came back, and the text doesn't mention him at all again till the end of Abraham's life, like Abraham died, and then he mentions Isaac again, right? So you have this really interesting thing going on in a text that's trying to draw us or our attention to it. And one of the ways that the author draws our attention to it is very similar to what I described several months back in Genesis. So in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, you have two creation accounts that are welded together into one story. They're stitched so that we get a different perspective two kind of oral traditions of the same moment, right? Or the same set of things going on. One of the ways we know that's the case is because one author communicated or one writer communicated everything with the use of Elohim, meaning God's name only described in that way. The other author or writer that gets infused or edited into the text, it only uses Jehovah or Yahweh kind of language, never Elohim language. So it's two kind of like completely different writing styles melded into one. The interesting thing about Genesis chapter 22 is the same thing happens. And the part that gets added in or stitched in from a different account or a different oral tradition would be the part in the brackets, which is interesting because what it's saying makes it sound to us very transactional. Meaning, Abraham did a thing, and because he did a thing, he got a thing, right? But if you understand the way covenant works, covenant, God said, I'm making a covenant with you. Who promised? God promised. Who was the other half of the promise? It wasn't Abraham, it was God. So God promised it, then God said, I'll uphold it. Then you get to chapter 22, and the author is reminding us of that promise, meaning it's not a transaction at all. It wasn't a this for that. If you do this, then you get that, even though it feels that way because of the chunk stitched in. It's more to do with this relationship and God saying the covenant is being upheld. It's about relationship. It's the first mention of love. It's about this deep connection of father-son relationship mirroring what happens in the gospels. So you have all of this language that relationship is over obedience. Relationship is over everything in the text, right? So let me give you a couple more examples just to further reinforce the point. The next one is an Old Testament example. Uh, Jacob. Jacob is wrestling with God. I'm not going to read the whole section. It'll be up there. But there's this idea that Jacob was alone at a really uh, nervous time for him because he's about to see his brother again who he tricked out of his entire inheritance. 
Uh, he's pretty scared about the moment. While he's alone, uh, God comes and begins to wrestle with him. And there's a section that says that as they're wrestling, um, he is talking, God's saying, hey, let me go. And Jacob says, I will not let you go until you bless me. And then he being pre-incarnate, Jesus says, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. So there's this interaction going on where Jacob, the character, is saying, I want to be blessed. I'll do this thing. You give me that thing. Okay? Tell me if this sounds familiar to you. I prayed. Now it's your job to answer it. Or another example would be, I served. And it's your job to bless it. Or I was generous. And my hope is that you will give back even more generously. I loved others. Now it's your job to have them love me. I did the right thing. Or I avoided doing the wrong thing. What's my reward? Are you pleased with me? Are we in right relationship? You see how we have this give and take relationship often with God. I did, and now I expect, or I hope. There's this interchange going on often with us. And I, I think sometimes the reason we fail to recognize it is because it's so prevalent in our culture that it seeped into our relationship with God or into the church and then it doesn't feel awkward at all for us to assume that's the way God interacts with us. If, for example, let's just imagine for a moment that you came up to me and you said, hey Russ, I have a favor to ask. Can you do whatever? And if my response was, I would absolutely be happy to help you with that because I know that you're gonna turn around and at some point I'll be able to call on that favor and get something from you that I need, okay? If I said that, most of us would go, yeah, that's kind of how it works, right? I did something nice, and then when you need something, then you ask, and then I'll do it, and it's kind of give, take, back, forth, right? But imagine what you're really saying in that moment. What you're really, what I'm saying is if you came to me and said, Russ, will you do a favor for me? And my answer was yes, because when I am in a situation, I need something, I'll do it. What I'm not, I'm not doing a favor for you at all. I'm actually doing a favor for me. Isn't that interesting how it works? And culturally, we do this all the time. Culturally, it's like, yeah, great. Now I've got a debt on you and you're going to pay it later, which is really only about me and less about you. And yet, this is the way that we sometimes interact with God. It may, has, it may have clouded the very way we think. It doesn't make it about relationship as much as it discourages real relationship. It doesn't make it authentic as much as it makes a transaction that really begins to increase distance. So what God does in this text is he flips the script he calls Jacob by name. He enters into relationship with him. He reminds him of who he is. He makes the interaction personal. He even goes as far as to begin to change his name, to redefine the relationship, to say that you used to be this, but now because we interact, you're this. He's bringing about transformation. There's a general consensus that when Jacob receives a new name, it's not just some external dressing. 
it's not just a different title. It's all about transformation. The scriptures would talk about it as a metamorphosis, something that's transpiring inside. That means he's different in who he is, his essence, not just dressing up the externals. So you have this idea that God is into having relationship over and above obedience, over and above transaction, which takes us to the New Testament. If you want, you can turn in your Bibles, but it'll also be on the screen. In Luke chapter 15, 11 through 32, there's a familiar story called the parable of the prodigal son. In this particular story, uh, I'll just kind of summarize the beginning. There's a, um, a godlike figure who has two sons. The first son is considered to be the rebellious son. He comes to the dad slap in the face, kind of a really... Um, like pretty horrible statement. I wish you were dead because if you were dead, then I would have your inheritance. So I value what you would give me more than I value my relationship with you. And so he has this interchange with his dad and the dad goes, okay, well then just take your half of the inheritance and, and choose to do whatever you want with it. So the son leaves. As we find out, his life is not going the way that he had planned or hoped for. He finds himself in a very depressing situation, and he thinks to himself in that moment, man, if only I could just go back and be a servant in my father's house, that would be better than the life I'm currently living. Now, I reminded you that he has squandered everything that he's been given. So he starts to humbly make his way back to his father. The text tells us that the father, the godlike figure, does something that would have been frowned upon in society at that time and runs. That's a sign of disgrace. But he runs to his son, embraces the son while he's still far off. It's not a dignified thing that he did, but he goes and he embraces him, welcomes him back. As he's bringing him in, there's this whole like commotion going on like get a party started bring out the best meal you know kill the fattened calf do this put a ring on him put a robe on him like going over and above welcome him back and then we get to this part of the text that says this now his older son was in the field and as he came and drew near to the house he heard music and dancing and he called one of his servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he res received him back safe and sound. But he, the older brother, was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, uh, but he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command. Let, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who was, devo or who was devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. I want to take the next few moments to kind of help us examine our relationship with God. I want to encourage you to think about how you might know if you have a transactional relationship with God. If the way you're interacting with God is transactional over relational. There's a couple ways you might be able to tell. First one is this. 
I have you never. I have you never. You can know that you're operating out of a more transactional relationship with God if you express an I have you never kind of relationship. If you're expressing to God that you've held up your end of the bargain, but somehow he hasn't held up his, that he somehow hasn't blessed your efforts, or that what you thought you would get in return for obedience or doing the right thing or helping out or serving or giving would have been a different investment other than the one you received back, then it's very much clear that you're in a this for that a give-to-get relationship with God. It's clear that the motivation then, true motivation, for serving is in receiving. True motivation for giving is in getting. Now, this leads to some troubling places because it makes uh, it about self-righteousness and it makes it about a transaction that is not about love and commitment but rather about exchange. It takes, uh, creates a relationship that's about entitlement. I thought I held up my end, which means I'm entitled to what you're supposed to be giving me. It can also create uh, feelings of embitterment or frustration. How's your relationship with God right now? Well, I'm kind of frustrated because it's not working out life the way I thought. I thought if I did these things, these would be the outcomes. And so we put conditions on our relationship, and that's one way we'll know that it's transactional. Another is the phrase, this son of yours. This son of yours. Now notice, he says in the text, I never once disobeyed you, likely a lie, right? If you've been a son and you had a father, there's a chance at one point in your life you probably didn't follow the rules or didn't do what he had hoped, right? So he says that, but then he distanced himself from his brother and doesn't go, my brother did this. He says, this son of yours, throwing all the blame, all the responsibility onto the father and not on himself or even and onto his brother. And you can tell that you have a transactional relationship with God if you're concerned about the equality between you and your sibling or family of God or friend or neighbor or small group member. If what you're doing is comparing the return on investment you're getting to how well your group member is faring or how well your brother or sister is, the person across the pew then we're beginning to base our relationship on a transaction rather than a relationship. And as you know, anytime you begin to compare your life with someone else, it never goes well. It always goes poorly. Always. When you begin to compare your life and what your expectations are or your status in life or your stage of life or how well you're doing or how well you're not doing compared to how well they're doing, all of that leads to either being incredibly disappointed, disappointed because you don't quite match up, disappointed because you got the short end of the stick, or it leads you to feel very arrogant because look at me compared to them. I'm faring much better, which obviously means God is pleased 
which obviously means like my life is going well. Why? Because I'm obedient. Why? Because I do the right things, because I serve, I give, whatever it is that in your mind is part of that transaction with God. But neither posture springs out of relationship. Whether you're disappointed or arrogant, neither springs out of relationship. Again, rather this exchange. But here's what's fascinating. The God-like figure, the father in the story, turns the script again, and he says this, son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours, right? Son, implying relationship, similar to calling Abraham by name, calling Jacob by name. When you have a father and he says, son, it's like he's calling you by name. There's this relationship, there's this sense of love and respect. Then he says, you are always with me, which speaks to the idea of proximity, speaks to the idea of closeness, togetherness, relationship. And then he finishes that phrase by saying, and all that is mine is yours, that you're inheriting the whole thing, not just future tense, but present tense. That the benefits of being a son or a daughter of the king begin now and carry on through eternity. And what do you have to do to get that? What did the older son have to do to receive that statement? Nothing. Nothing. Right? Nothing. The beauty of this story, and the, the writer of Scripture is always doing this, seems to be at least, always putting the big question mark at the end of the story. We have no idea of whether the older brother came in. The father simply said, come back into the party. What's been lost has been found. What was dead is alive. Everything I have is yours. Come in, right? We don't know the answer. We don't know if he came in. We don't know if we, he was like, forget you, I'm done. We don't know if he then took the course of his brother, which was like, forget it, give me my half now, I'm out. I'm going to take the route of my other brother. We have no idea because it's begging the question for us. What do you do? If you're in the midst of this transactional relationship with God where you're like, what about, or I didn't get, or there's disappointment, then the question comes to us. So what are you going to do about it? Are you going to come in? Are you going to surrender? Because surrender is really the only expectation, right? Just to let go and say, yeah, I guess it is already mine. I guess I am in relationship. I guess does love me deeply and longs to be not in a transactional but a transformative relationship, one in which my life is made better as we relate, not as we give to get. My encouragement to us this week is to ask ourselves the question, what kind of relationship do I have? Is it transactional? And have I been operating that way or is it more transformational? And in small groups this week, what I would love for us to do, I'm going to put a list of questions. You can maybe take a picture of those questions. But is to just ask ourselves, uh, what does it look like 
and the practical every day to have a this for that kind of relationship with God. And then secondly, what are some other ways that you have seen yourself or others make I have you never or this son of yours kind of a statements? And how do you avoid going to those places with God? And then the last set of questions is what does it mean to really have a transformational relationship? What does that look like for you or for other people in your group or for others within the community? And besides surrendering and just accepting that, what else do we need to do to lean into seeking that type of relationship? Again, not a this for that, but how do we like create spaces that enable us to be more transformational in our relationship? Let me pray, and uh, our hope this week is that you will wrestle more with that. Let's pray. God, we love you, not for what we get out of you, not for what you give us. We pray to you not because we're just here to ask more requests, hoping that you'll be some uh, cosmic uh, dispensary of goods, raining down blessing, or uh, giving us what it is we desire, but rather we pray to you we interact with you, we serve you because we love you. We relate to you because we want to know you. We spend time with you because relationships grow as we invest in one another. And that is the kind of relationship that you are desiring. You said to Abraham in that moment where he was saying to you, hey, is this good enough? You said, Abraham, I love you. And then, to Jacob, Jacob, let me give you a new name. And then to the older brother, all that I have is yours. We're already in relationship. Would you please lean into that relationship with me more deeply? So God, may this be a reminder and encouragement that the rest of this summer and into this fall that we might be a people earnestly seeking you that we might desire to know you, that we might be transformed by you. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.